Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah. Before we jump into today's discussion, I wanted to get in another comment uh, from yesterday's discussion. Recall, we opened the phone lines to you uh, to respond to the uh, shootings in Orlando. And uh, thanks for your response. Appreciate the discussion that we had yesterday. Uh, this came in from Margaret in Logan. Uh, Margaret wanted to alert us. Uh, this came in about 7 o'clock last night. Uh, she said there's a vigil at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Logan right now, starting at 7 o'clock. So just to alert you, uh, we got that uh, too late to attend that vigil, but I hope that went well. And there was a vigil last night in, in Logan, Prince of Peace Lutheran Church. And then Margaret goes on to say, Modern history lest we forget our nation's first peoples. I believe Margaret is responding to the characterization of uh, the uh, the tragedy in uh, Orlando as uh, the deadliest mass shooting in American history. That's uh, noticed in papers, newspapers. That's now been amended to uh, deadliest in modern history or recent history. So that's a, that's a good point, lest we forget our nation's first peoples. Keep those comments coming to upraxcess at uh, gmail.com, and uh, you can respond as well on our website upr.org. Welcome now to Access Utah. As part of a new series of events called Art Landish, Land Art, Landscape, and the Environment, presented by the Utah Museum of Fine Arts, a Land Riders panel will be held tomorrow evening at 7 at the Salt Lake City Public Library in the main library. This uh, panel of scholars and creative writers will explore the relationship between man and nature in literature of the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. And uh, we're going to be talking on the program today with two members of that panel. And uh, so we uh, bring in right now uh, Paisley Rectal, University of Utah professor of uh, English. Welcome to the program. Thank you. And uh, in studio with me is Charles Waugh, Utah State University associate professor of English. Thanks for being with me. Uh, Thanks for having us. Uh, so we uh, perhaps in this program will not cover exactly what's going to be covered in the Land Riders uh, panel. Uh, that's fine. Uh, encourage you to go to the panel in any case. Uh, and that's 7 o'clock tomorrow evening at the main library, Salt Lake City uh, Public Library. Before we uh, jump into uh, relationship between man and nature and related uh, themes, uh, Paisley Rectal, I, I noticed on your Facebook page, um, you had a very interesting and moving note Responding to the uh, to the Orlando uh, tragedy, I wonder if you could tell me about that. Oh yes, um, <laughs> I forgot about this a little bit. Um, well, I I've been teaching in Michigan and Wyoming and in Utah for the last um, you know twenty years basically, and I've had a number of LGBTQ students um, throughout my time. Some that were very much out, some that were coming out, some that were still trying to figure out how to come out. Um, And just a couple of weeks before this last semester ended, um, we had a very long and vibrant discussion about a student's poem. A student is very much out, and he was writing about spirituality in place, um, to to put it in a condensed format. And it was set in a dance club. And um, the discussion in our workshop was really about the, the dance club as this kind of spiritual space and a community space. And a lot of the students were able to engage in that conversation because a number of the students in my class uh, were LGBTQ. And they were just, um, it was a really moving and interesting moment to me to realize that 
that community outside the classroom that had sustained these students, um, that had offered them family and protection and home, was now actually working within my classroom and creating another sort of literary community inside the classroom that made people um, feel comfortable talking about things, but then also really helped educate the straight students in class who weren't understanding like what that dance club would mean. And after Orlando, I mean, I found myself thinking very much about that student's poem and about that discussion and about the students that I've worked with over the years who have done a, a tremendous amount of work, I think, um, for straight educators like me, um, straight you know, students that are in their workshops, uh, work that they probably don't want to take on. It's probably exhausting for them, but you know, it's, it's really necessary they, you know, for us and then also for the other students in the class to, um, to learn in a different way and to feel part of a university community in a different way. So that's what I was thinking about after Orlando. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that's interesting, important to focus on the the, the sanctuary that is the dance club, and and yeah. the violation of that sanctuary through this this horrible tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I don't know, Charles. What anything you'd like to say about the, the um, Orlando? I don't know that I can add anything other than that. It's incredibly sad. It just mm-hmm. it's it it. it it racks my whole body to think about. This keeps happening. It keeps happening over and over again. And politics in America are such that nothing happens to change it. And uh, it's it's just it's a debilitating situation. It's hard to it's hard to know how to move forward. Mm-hmm. One more thing on this uh, Facebook post, uh, Paisley Rechtel. Um, you you say you may think that having a third of the class be LGBTQ is high. For me, it's not. Why do you think that's it? That is it's been been consistent, I guess, in your classes. Pretty consistent. Um, I, I have a smaller classes because I run poetry writing workshops, nonfiction workshops in general, um, and uh, so like three or four students makes up a very large percentage of that classroom. Uh, I think it might be because you know I'm teaching creative writing, and it's a space that its origins, the creative writing workshop, the origins come out of a couple of different spheres, but one is a sort of therapeutic model. Um, it was soldiers returning home from war, and the GI Bill sort of encouraged a lot of universities and colleges to start offering writing workshops as places for veterans to write about the trauma of war. And I think that that is a legacy that gets handed down um, in our conception of the creative writing workshop. And so students that feel like they might not necessarily have an easy home in other classrooms might be gravitating towards the creative writing classroom because it offers them a place to explore um, issues of trauma, and, but also identity, joy, um, you know, creativity. A lot of people love creative writing classrooms, not just because they're great pedagogical models to get us to, to read more closely, to think more closely about texts, to become more fluent with the language, but it also offers us a space where we can really start to integrate all the things that interest us personally in, in a pedagogical uh, classroom, and so I think LGBTQ students have been really um, engaged by that. So I've been really lucky, actually. Mm-hmm. I want to uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, with with you both, with Charles, especially is, is Charles's uh, the, the book that you uh, edited uh, helped translate uh, "Family of Fallen Leaves: Stories of Agent Orange" by Vietnamese writers. Gets us into the environment as well, but I noticed that small one on the heading of small world. Charles, while you spent some time in in Vietnam, and I noticed, uh, Paisley Rectal, you've, you've also traveled in Vietnam. I did. I lived in 
lived in Hanoi for six months, actually. So. Oh, you, oh, you lived in Hanoi? Uh, and traveled. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me start with you, Paisley Rechtal. What, what, uh, what took you to uh, Hanoi? I had just won the Amy Lowell Poetry Traveling Fellowship, and um, the rules of the fellowship were that you live outside of North America for one year. So I divided up my time. I lived um, half the year in Paris and the other half of the year in Hanoi. And um, they were just both places that I had always, I'd always wanted to travel to Vietnam. Uh, and I'd lived in Asia um, a number of different times uh, throughout my life, and I'd just never gotten into Vietnam. Uh, while I was there, actually, I'm very excited to hear Charles talk about his project because the environment um, war still is a, a big uh, series of issues that are going on in Vietnam. Um, and also, I mean, I just became fascinated with war memorials there as well. And was um, I just finished a, a collection of sonnets, basically, um, uh, in part exploring the idea of memorializing war. And it takes place in parts of Southeast Asia, including Hanoi. So... Um, but I just, I just was really interested in living in that space. But, but you know, I think Charles's topic, I think, is just so fascinating and relevant to the ways we think about um, the environment and war now. Do you? Uh, I'm going to uh, turn to Charles, but uh, while I'm doing that, I, I don't know if you have accessible any any part of those sonnets that you've composed. Yeah, I do. I can read um, the first sonnet, and I should uh, mention about this series of sonnets. They come with these photographs by the photographer Andrea Modica, who um, uh, basically went to the Colorado State Mental Institution that, uh, many years ago, and they had unearthed a whole collection of skulls of uh, mental patients that had lived there in the last century or so. And these people have been you know, buried, essentially, without any names, any sort of identifying markers. Uh, the skulls themselves, when they looked at them closely, it looked like a lot of a lot of the um, patients had been suffering from syphilis, um, which can cause all sorts of uh, mental <laughs> problems as well. Um, so the poem responds both to Andrea Modica's uh, particular portrait of one skull that was unearthed. That's um, since they have no names, they come basically with a, um, a a letter and a number and an age and a gender. And then it also thinks about uh, my, my uncle who fought in the Vietnam War. This is called Portrait of F-19, male, 42 years old. What dreams remain encased inside this freckled gourd, this ostrich egg cradled on cardboard like the pate of a man caught catnapping on stacks of factory cartons? My uncle, our line's humored, grizzled hero, who'd survived Den Kidao to find he couldn't work a paint gun trigger to spray his house planks gold and rose. Shadows from morgue lights fissured the cracks. The skull shivers on its paper mantle. I only think the rest of a man's attached, crouched, fetal inside his nightmare's flack that drifts into a mist of candied paints. I squint, but cannot find the hairline hasp forensic says was groined by lobes that tried and failed to fuse to one join. So the only thing it is, I guess readers might want to know about the poem, is that I was really kind of obsessed with this idea of how people come from one traumatic experience and then sort of try and reintegrate back home. Um, and this idea that there's always a fissure, there's always some sort of 
um, crack between that past life and that present life, just as there is a crack between what we see and observe and how we can actually describe it and, 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 and you know, basically encapsulate it. Um, and I think Orlando is another example of that kind of fissuring, where we see something traumatic and horrible, and how do we encompass that? How do we respond to it? If you just joined us, we're talking with Paisley Rectile, University of Utah Professor of English, and Charles Waugh, Utah State University Associate Professor of English. Uh, they will uh, each uh, be involved in a panel that's uh, happening at the Salt Lake City Public Library, the main library, 7 o'clock tomorrow evening. It's a Land Riders panel, and it's a part of a series of events called Art Landish, Land Art, Landscape, and Environment, presented by Utah Museum of uh, Fine Arts. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Before I have you respond to some of the, the themes that uh, Paisley Rectal was just uh, treating in, in, in that poem, in our discussion, uh, Charles Watt, what got you interested in this? So what took you to, to Vietnam? Uh, well, <laughs> it's a complicated story. I'll try to make it short. Um, I, I was a teenager in the 80s, and so I was sort of coming into adulthood as, uh, as the United States was really processing what it meant to lose the Vietnam War and, uh, you know, all the movies that came out at that time, Rambo and Apocalypse Now, all those things, all those things that said to me as a kid that this was an important uh, cultural thing that was happening. Uh, all those all those representations all really clashed with what I learned when I was a history undergraduate in college that uh, the things didn't necessarily match up. The experience of uh, of those movies didn't match up with what I was reading in the history books. Um, it certainly didn't match up with my sense of um, of who the real victims were out of that whole experience. Uh, we talked a lot. Uh, the movies made a lot of uh, the American experience, the veteran experience, which was an important thing for us to cope with. But we didn't really talk at all about what happened to the Vietnamese. And um, when I started, uh, you know, to taking these classes as an undergraduate, one of the things that I, one of the classes I took was this really special uh, class called a junior tutorial, where it was just me and two other students and a teacher talking about uh, the history of Laos. And one of the books that we read was a, a, a series of drawings, crayon drawings, from a refugee camp in Laos. And um, there were pictures by children of the airplanes, the first airplanes that they'd ever seen that came and dropped bombs on their villages and destroyed their families. And I, I was just devastated by this, just thinking about you know how wrong it was that there were these children whose families we destroyed, these lives that we destroyed, and this was even in a country that was tangential to the war that we were fighting. Um, it, it was a huge impact on me. I just figured I needed to know more. And, and that was really the, the start of it. It all kind of came out of that 80s experience in those early classes as an undergraduate. I went on to do a master's degree in U.S. history. Um, I learned Vietnamese. I went and lived there for a while. Um, I decided I didn't want to write history. I came back and did a Ph.D. in literature and creative writing. And uh, that's kind of where that's where it's come from. Um, the book that you're talking about, The Family of Fallen Leaves, came out of uh, a year spent 2004 and 2005. Um, I had a Fulbright grant to teach at the National University in Hanoi. And at that time, um, 
there's a group called the Vietnamese Association for Victims of, a- of Agent Orange, uh, acronym is VAVA. And VAVA had brought a lawsuit against the manufacturers of the defoliants that were used in Vietnam. Um, much like the law, the lawsuit that was brought by American veterans, um, and which was settled out of court, and all of those veterans got a very small compensation. Uh, VAVA was hoping that they could get some kind of uh, compensation for the many uh, victims of Agent Orange in Vietnam. There's some estimates from anywhere from three to four million people suffering from illnesses associated with that exposure. And uh, while I was there, uh, the uh, the the U.S. the U.S. Uh, federal court uh, decided that um, there would be no there would be no compensation there there was there was no law that had been broken by the United States or the chemical manufacturers uh, in the use of Agent Orange and then I was left in my classroom with you know forty young Vietnamese students being the representative American trying to explain to them how it could possibly be the case that uh, that American victims could be compensated and recognize that something was done wrong to them, but there would be nothing given to this group of Vietnamese who ostensibly had a, a much larger exposure and had a lot, a lot more people affected by, by this thing. So it was, it was really trying to figure out what can I do you know, to, to, to do something about this. And I've been interested in eco-criticism and interested in writing about Vietnam in various ways. And uh, one of the things that I figured that I could do, I can speak Vietnamese, I can read Vietnamese, um, I, I could translate. I can translate some of these stories and bring some of these stories back to the United States to try to do something about it. And, you know, since that time, I would have to say, not, not because of my book, but um, because of a variety of people working on this issue in Congress and advocating Congress, and uh, money has been allocated to help clean up um, some of the worst, what are called hot spots of, uh, of dioxin exposure in Vietnam. The first and worst being the airport in Da Nang, um, where, uh, you know, we spent, the U.S. has spent now millions of dollars to help uh, clean up these places where basically just barrels and barrels of defoliants were just dumped at the end of the war. So there's these massively toxic places where uh, of course, that 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 dioxin doesn't just stay in one place; it, it trickles into the um, into the watershed and into lakes and things like that. People there have been found with 900 times the amount of uh, dioxin in their system as recommended, is somewhat safe by the World Health Organization. So, uh, so we are we're doing the right thing. We're moving in the right direction. The Obama administration has really stepped up its involvement with Vietnam, and and, and that's been a great thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, ju- just to, uh, to nail this down for people that don't know the f- the, the story, uh, quoting from the the uh, introduction to your book, uh, between 1962 and 1971, the U.S. military sprayed approximately 20 million gallons of Agent Orange and other chemical defoliants on Vietnam and Laos, exposing combatants and civilians from both sides to the deadly contaminant dioxin. Before we move on, dioxin, it is deadly and, and it uh, can, can result in generational problems, right? Absolutely. Um, dioxin is one of the most uh, toxic substances that made by human beings. Um, and uh, it is tetragenic, it, which means that it it, uh, it it can cause changes in DNA that get passed on to, to the next generation. So um, it can cause all sorts of immediate reactions like chloracne and uh, things like that. It can also uh, cause diabetes for uh, for people later in life. 
Um, it's, it's just a host. It's a wild card being dealt into a person's DNA, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, horrific kinds of things can be you know, attributed to that exposure. Um, it, it's hard to, for the science to keep up. You know, they, they don't know all the mechanisms. Um, but certainly, uh, from my perspective, I've always just thought, well, if you, you dump something that you know is really, really toxic into somebody's ecosystem and uh, they eat that food and you can register that that dioxin's in their system, I, I'm going to err on the side of uh, the fact that there's a pretty good chance that that dioxin has done something bad to them. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just a reminder, uh, Charles Waugh, the book that he uh co-edited and it helped translate Family of Fallen Leaves, Stories of Agent Orange by Vietnamese Writers. Come back to you and uh, maybe have you tell me some of the stories. Let me uh, turn back to Paisley Rectal. So I'm listening to, to this. Um, I, I'm I'm going broader. I don't know if you were as well, Paisley Rectal. You know, you know, there's there's metaphor in this uh, with interconnectedness uh, of all of us with, with nature and, and back and forth and, and the effect we have on, on the world around us. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because as he's talking, um, one of the things I didn't mention uh, to anyone is I've, I'm working on a nonfiction project right now called The Broken Country, which is about basically a lot of uh, a crime that happened in Salt Lake City a few years ago where um, a very young Vietnamese American man um, had a mental break and began stabbing uh, people at a grocery store near my house, uh, all the while screaming about the Vietnam War. His own age made it impossible for him to have personally experience the war. But um, I started doing a lot of um, oral histories with uh, Vietnamese refugees, post-1975 refugees that came to this area. And as Charles is talking, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating and terrifying to think about how um, when you destroy a place, when you contaminate a place, there's so many different ways that that trauma continues to radiate out through communities um, and generations, uh, whether it's literal poison that works its way out uh, in, in the generations or it is a kind of traumatic poisoning that works its way through the generations as well. And one of the things that I found was, and I hadn't even thought that there might be an environmental uh, connection that, that, that goes down to chemistry, um, but the rates of mental illness in uh, post-1975 Southeast Asian refugees is extremely high. Uh, and, and it seems to be elevated down through second and even third generations now. And um, there's a, it's a host of very complicated reasons, but when we're talking about the connection between people and place, place we might think of solely and from an environmental standpoint as trees, nature, you know, a city, an, a material environment. But I, I would actually argue that place um, is also something that is immaterial, that we carry with us, um, that we continue to bring, whether it's cultural influences, traumatic influences, we, we continue to ex exist in places and bring those places with us throughout history. And, and, and our children inherit those, too. Um, so that's the metaphor that I see, mm -hmm. uh, and and it's pretty scary when you think about it. What what do you think, Charles? Uh, that, Paisley, you're absolutely right about that, and I think one of the things that's um, that was most sort of mm, the thing that impressed me the most about many of the stories in, in the book um, is just that issue that you're talking about this this impact on the imagination, you know. Um, 
pregnancy is a fraught thing. Uh, it's a thing that's it's all about imagination. What, you know, if you're going to get pregnant and there's this thing growing inside you, this body growing inside you, it's all about your imagination about what that child is going to be like and what your life will be like with them. And, and that's a, that can be a scary thing all by itself for people who live in, in places where they don't have exposure to toxins. But you become pregnant in a place that has been exposed to Agent Orange, and suddenly now the, all the power of that, you may not have any outward symptom, but there may be this thing lurking inside you that is you know, subtly corrupting this life that's growing inside you. And what a terrifying, terrifying experience for these families at that time. Um, it, it, you're right. It, the, these things are inside us. They they come inside us and they they reside in our minds and they they really have a huge impact beyond just the explicit uh, physical uh, manifestations of health. Hmm. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, uh, more with Charles Waugh, who is Utah State University Associate Professor of English and Paisley Rectile, University of Utah Professor of English. Uh, they are participating in a panel of scholars and creative writers. They'll be exploring the relationship between man and nature in the literature of 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. And that's a land writers panel uh, at Salt Lake City Public Library in the main library, 7 o'clock tomorrow evening. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. That's toll-free, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We do have an email come in. We'll get to, to that right after the break. Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University. Martha Hughes Cannon was a noted physician and the first female state senator in the U.S. She got a chemistry degree from the University of Deseret and attended medical school at the University of Michigan. At the Pharmacy School of the University of Pennsylvania, she was the only woman in her class. She joined the Utah Equal Suffrage Association, where she focused on mainly medical issues and is primarily responsible for the establishment of the State Board of Health. Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University, providing students another perspective of current societal issues. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu. Support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators, one story at a time. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm joined by uh, two members of a panel that will be discussing um, relationship between man and nature in the literature of 19th, 20th, 21st centuries. It's a land writers panel, and it's happening uh, tomorrow evening at 7 in the Salt Lake City Public Library at the, at the main uh, library. Um, and uh, I'm talking with Paisley Rectal, University of Utah Professor of English, and Charles Waugh, Utah State University Associate Professor of English. You're welcome to join this conversation. Hope that you will. If you have a question or comment, at uh, toll-free 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. 
Paisley Rectile, I was interested, we were talking before the break about th- this idea that you had brought up of uh, that we, we carry, I guess, a, a sense of, sense of the land w- within us. I wonder if you had that experience. You traveled to, you know, say, Hanoi or wherever you travel. What's that experience like, uh, given, given what you said? Well, I think we always carry an ideal version of a place in our minds. The imagination is so powerful, as Charles was pointing out. And going to Vietnam, I was very much confronted, I think, environmentally. That was the biggest shock that I experienced there, which was, uh, and in part, it was because the reports that I had had about what it would be like to live in Hanoi were about 15 years out of date. When I when I sat down to think about them, people were saying, oh, it's such a beautiful city. There are all of these lovely lakes, and, you know, everyone rides their bicycle everywhere, and um, it's, it's, it, it's just gorgeous. And I went there, and it was um, exactly not that. Uh, there were lakes, but they were just clogged with diapers and beer cans and a thick sort of coffee-colored scum of something unidentifiable over almost every, you know, river and stream. Uh, The bikes had long ago been replaced by motorcycles and now more and more cars. Um, You couldn't walk even on the sidewalk without almost being run over. It was, there was smog. You could barely see, you know, two or three city blocks ahead of you. Um, Some days it was so bad. There were. It, it took me a while to realize that there were no kind of birds <laughs> that I. I was. Listening, I could hear no birds in the sky. The only birds I was seeing were in cages, and um, it really made me realize like how much when we think about traveling different places, we we have these fantasies of the place we're going to go to, the environment we're going to go to, but we also keep an idea of what a, a healthy environment looks like, the environment we also might have just left. Um, which may or may not be healthy, and you go to these places and you're kind of overwhelmed. I found I found it one of the most depressing cities ever, but I wanted to continue living there because I thought it was important to live in a place that um, at that point seemed to have almost no sense of restrictions, no environmental um, I shouldn't say no, but they had they had pockets of environmental activism, but it, it really did feel like. Um, you know, throwing paper off the Grand Canyon. I mean, it felt like mm. there was very little that people could effectively do because there was a fair amount of government corruption. Um, and it, it really taught me a couple of things about the place that I had left, which is um, one of the great things I think about Salt Lake and one of the great things I think about um, the United States is its growing environmental activism and its growing environmental concerns. Certainly not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but you know we fight for clean air. We fight to preserve our green spaces. We fight to preserve um, our natural environments, and, and in part because we understand increasingly that interconnectedness. You know, it's not like nature is out there somewhere, some pristine thing that we can visit and then we just go back to our our homes. I mean, we're surrounded by it. We are engaged in it. We, we make our livings off it. We, we take our enjoyment from it. And to preserve the natural is to preserve the human. Uh, and when I went to Hanoi, I was um, really struck by the fact that it was a country that was radically, you know, rapidly industrializing and, you know, scrambling to take its place, you know, among first world nations, second world nations. And, and um, they came with a huge cost. And the first thing to go, the first and most important cost was 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 the environment? Before I have Charles respond, he's, he's nodding his head over here about some of your experiences in Hanoi. Uh, why did you? This is very interesting. You, why did you feel like you 
even though I know it was depressing to you that you felt like you needed to live there? I think I live in a bubble. I think mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate. Um, I mean, I live a very good, solid, middle-class existence. I live in a place where um, I'm around a lot of like-minded people who are also fighting for the same things I believe in. And I think it makes me very, it can make me lazy. It can make me very, um, it's the definition of privilege, which is I think that these things are just natural, right? These things will be just taken care of. Other people will help me take care of them or they will take care of them for me. And I think it was important to live in an environment where I felt really uncomfortable for a while to recognize and to remind myself, this is this is why you write about the things you write about. This is why you care about the things you care about. And this is why you will lobby for the things that you care about. Because it's the, the reality is this, these are very fragile um, and tenuous connections and protections. And, you know, I didn't look at Vietnam as, geez, you know, these people, they're so uneducated. I looked at it as this is what we would all do um, if we didn't try to check ourselves. This is just... This is what globalization looks like. Mm. And, um, and I think that that's important to remember that, you know, I don't live, this bubble that I live in is very unusual. And it's important to recognize that what's going on in other countries across the world and would happen here, and in, in fact does happen in the United States more and more. I mean, we can look at Flint and see the exact same thing. This is what happens when we don't care and when we don't think about anything more than money. Charles Wall, I noticed you were nodding your head at some of the experiences. You've had similar experiences in in, in Hanoi. Uh, tell me about that. Uh, yeah, th- I think uh, very similar kinds of experience that Paisley's uh, describing. Um, the first time I lived there in 1996, uh, there were still a lot of bicycles on the street. It was still pro- it was probably a, f- a 50-50 mix of bikes and, and motorbikes. And uh, then the next time I lived there was, you know, in 2004, so eight years later. And by then, you you saw almost no bicycles on the street, maybe one or two here and there, but it was almost all motorbikes. And then living there again in 2009, uh, then that's when the the real hit of cars, you know, the crush of cars happened. And uh, in fact, I saw a Hummer (laughs) on the streets in Hanoi in 2009, which is just mind boggling Mm -hmm. when you consider how tiny those streets are and how big a Hummer is. It just makes no sense. Uh, But at at any rate, I I think Paisley's really right about, um, about this issue of you know the, the the environmental problems that Vietnam faces are problems that m- most countries around the world face, and the fact that we face as well. And I know that a lot of people like to hate the EPA uh, in our country, but boy, I would much rather live in a country with an EPA. Uh, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, these things are so important to our quality of life as Americans, and that we have taken so for granted. Uh, that with, without these protections, uh, you know, we would we would be facing the same problems. We, we'd have the same things, and they do still happen. You know, there's accidents, but at least we have a group that's willing to then uh, hold people accountable. And in Vietnam, it's not that they don't have environmental laws; they do, but they have no uh, body that's responsible necessarily for really enforcing those laws and for bringing those people to you know to justice. Um, Paisley's also right that there are it's, it's changing. You know, this, this country, Vietnam, is is in a real period of transition. It's having to grow up really, really fast in the sense that 
uh, it's, it's hitting this industrial age. And, uh, and, and so everything's being compressed into, you know, just a, you know, a couple of decades versus, uh, for us, maybe the industrialization from the 19th century, taking all the way through the 1960s to get something like a clean water, or clean air act. Um, the most recent thing that's happened there is that, uh, a Taiwanese steel factory has, uh, released a bunch of toxic chemicals uh, to clean all of their pipes out. And then they just dumped that into the river. The river washed into the ocean. The o- and in the ocean, all these toxic chemicals or these toxic heavy metals killed something like 100 tons of fish. So tons and tons of fish, dead fish, started washing up on the shore. And, you know, it's a, this is a, a country that's mostly coastline, and most people eat seafood at least once a day. And so this is a huge... Uh, hit culturally as well as uh, nutritionally, um, and there's been a big movement to to fight. Their their slogan is that uh, fish need clean water and people need transparency, and they're clearly linking this this is issues just like Paisley said of of the government has to figure out a way to enforce the laws that they've created, and and they they haven't done that yet, um, but they're trying, and and people are willing to you know get arrested or beat up to st- stand up and say. We have to be able to have clean water and to, to have, you know, fresh, nutritious, safe food to eat. Um, so it's an it's, it's, it's amazing process to watch unfold, like right in front of our eyes. Mm. If you just joined us, we're uh, talking with Paisley Rechtal, University of Utah Professor of English, and Charles Waugh, Utah State University Associate Professor of English. Uh, they'll be a part of a, a panel, Landwriters land panel, and that's 7 o'clock tomorrow evening, Salt Lake City Public Library in the main library, and we're uh, pleased to have them with us uh, for the hour. Here is an email that's coming to us from upraxis at gmail.com or to upraxis at gmail.com. You can email us as well. This is Simon. He says, uh, I'm appreciating the insights the program is offering today. If you get the chance, would you address the question of whether the idea of man, all caps, and nature discourages a consideration of gendered responses to place? Let me start with Paisley Rechtal. Any thoughts on, on <laughs> I that? I'm afraid you'd start with me. Yeah. <laughs> that is a great question um, because it's. I should, I should back up and say two things. I mean, my interest, I, I am not... Uh, an environmental humanist. This is not my my <laughs> my background. I'm a medievalist and, and a creative writer by training. But that said, all of the classics of literature, when we think of the classics of nature writing, we're thinking of, you know, John McPhee, um, Muir, we're thinking of, you know, the popular writers as well, so like Into the Wild. They're almost all men, right? Um, one of the great ecological tomes, of course, um, you know, was, you know, Silent Spring and, you know, Rachel Carson. And so that was a great watershed moment for a number of reasons, because obviously it, it kicks off um, our, basically our environmentalist movement in a really serious way, it leads to laws, but also a woman wrote it. Um, and some of, when I think about some of the ways in which gender works, we think, I think in a very popular way, and I think maybe it's an American Western way, that there is a gendered um, sort of cast over landscape, and it is a male or masculine uh, space. It is a place where men go to test themselves. It is a place where men go to find themselves. But it is not a place where, where women necessarily find themselves. And I think that that's been changing over the course of the last century, whether it's through um, something like, um, you know, Silent Spring, but or even something as popular as um, the you know Cheryl Strayed 
uh, memoir, Wild, which was specifically about a woman going and hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And I think that... Um, that there's something we have we can't discount about that because again if we think about the history of the American West men didn't just settle it there were a lot of different people who settled it and a gender is a huge part of that women were here in fact women shaped some of the environment of Salt Lake City in ways that I find fascinating um, I have a piece in this in our mapping Salt Lake City website where um, you know when the Chinese came to work on the railroads after the railroad work was done um, it was Mormon women and housewives who fought for the Chinese to stay because they set up gardens to help feed these large Mormon families that, of course, were in the valley. And um, it was their activism that helped to sort of create a more integrated community. Uh, and, you know, things like, whether it's small things like that or it's, you know, the, the invisible diaries and letters of female homesteaders that we don't tend to read because they're not of quote-unquote historical value, there's a way in which I think our ideas of literature and nature have been inherently biased toward male perceptions and male bodies. Uh, but the reality is actually, no, this, as I said before, you know, when we think about the natural, we're also talking about the human, and the human includes women. Hmm. Uh, Charles, your, your take on this, uh, Simon's idea, or question of whether the idea of man and nature discourages consideration of gendered responses to place. Yeah, I I would just I would also just say uh, f- first off, uh, the Paisley you're you're absolutely a nature writer. You may not want to own it yet, but you know I've I've, <laughs> I've read Animal Eye and and it's like uh, your poetry is like you know taking a hike in a in an ecosystem that you know, but on a trail you've never been before. It's like oh I I think I recognize that, but oh look how wild that is. That's amazing. There's just so many uh, the way that you use. Um, natural imagery in your poetry is is amazing, and uh, so you, at some point you're going to have to cope with that. You're going to have to you have to own that. Um, but uh, and I agree with I agree with what you've said about this issue of the, of gender. Um, I, just from the other side of it, you know, some of the work that I've done has been looking at um, notions of of manhood based on this experience with the environment. Um, you know, uh, there's this long tradition in American culture of men going into the wilderness and killing a bear to prove that they're um, <laughs> that they're somehow a real man. And you know, you can read these uh, stories in sort of crude, you know, nonfiction, uh, autobiographical kinds of things. But the the most famous one of those is the autobiography of Davy Crockett. Um, and you know that guy was just a pathological bear killer. He he would kill hundreds of bears in a single season. You know this wasn't about him uh, providing for his family or anything like that. He he literally says that he's addicted to hunting these bears. Um, and you'll see these narratives you know evolve over uh, the centuries to the point where you know again bringing this back to one of my interests is that Norman Mailer writes the book Why Are We in Vietnam and you think oh this is going to be some sort of political tract and no it's it's a story about two young teenage boys who go to Alaska to shoot bears with their parents with their fathers and uh, how much the father's uh, identity is, rests on coming back home to Texas with this big bear that he's killed and. Um, you know, there's there's clearly something about that's uh, you know there's something that appeals to American men about this idea of of uh, testing the self by doing this. And fundamentally, I just what kind of test is this? It's the, the man has a gun, and the bear is a bear. Uh, the the gun's gonna win. 
you know, it's a test of, of shooting maybe and of nerves, but uh, why that would make someone a man, I don't know. It has real life uh, analogs as well. We've got uh, right here in Cache Valley, we've got the story of old Ephraim, the last mm -hmm. grizzly bear in uh, Utah was killed by Frank Clark uh, just up Logan Canyon. Um, and I say, of course, he says he regrets it afterwards. He was a magnificent specimen, but, you know, he was going to kill that bear. That bear was living near his sheep. He was going to kill it. Uh, I don't know. There's there's clearly some interest in our culture to bring these stories up, and then the culture reinforces uh, real life, and then real life affects the the literature that comes out of. It. There's this sort of feedback loop of, of of you know taking some life of some thing to prove something about being a human. It it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, but uh, this is kind of one of those cases I think where you know, the literature or the culture just kind of gets into this negative feedback loop where we're just sort of stuck. You know, how do we get out of that? I don't know. Mm. Uh, thanks for that question, Simon. Uh, interesting discussion, uh, as you heard, ensued. Um, Paisley Rectal, would you read us another poem? Do you have a, a, another poem you could sure um, pull, pull up there and read for I us? Just, uh, yeah, I just walked away from the stuff. But I, the newest project, and I just want to thank you, Charles, for saying such nice things <laughs> about Animal Eye. Um, and the new project I'm working on is actually I'm trying to retell Ovid's Metamorphosis. And um, the, one of the things that's interesting to me about that epic poem, which is essentially a collection of all the myths, is how much actually... Um, environmental destruction takes place uh, in there. And in fact, it's uh, when men go out and deliberately destroy, say, a sacred grove um, or cut down a tree or kill a deer that is, you know, particularly beloved by a god, that god then wreaks a terrible vengeance. And I'm trying to retell a lot of those stories in a very contemporary way. So there's no gods or goddesses, but to sort of keep to the themes and this is a poem that's going to be one of the ones that opens the collection. It's called Creation Story. Before the boy was born, he dreamed of a child beside a tree, fireflies flecking the watery dark. He remembers this now, standing with his four-year-old before the ancient oak outside their house, the tree so root-brittle that when the windstorm scoured the block, shaggy lanes of pine and maple, its copper trunk split as the tree heaved up, taking with its stones and flower beds half their tiny yard. Up and down the block, trees beached themselves onto cars and blacktop, the great roots yawed up in knots, trunks like longboats run aground. The man has taken his son to see them. The giants, his son calls them, snapped like matchsticks in the wind. Though it wasn't only wind that did this. The fact was humans caused a drought which worsened heat, which brought sandstorms up the coast, changed the very current of the ocean, which means hurricanes and even floods now at the doorsteps of strangers, like dogs flushing a wounded grouse to ground. They had done this. It was astonishing to the men how passively they'd worked such violence, that what they loved, desire, destroyed. But of course this was beyond the boy, and to tell him now would diminish his sense of security. For a moment, the man considers telling the boy about his dream to distract him, the image of a child sleeping so sweetly that a tree might fall in love with him. But even thinking of this image, it starts to change. The tree, having fallen in love with the boy, doesn't want to let him go. It wraps him in its roots instead, the little boy fetal in its embrace, curled there in the semblance of sleep, hoping that the tree might tire of him and let him leave. But the tree will not let the boy leave. 
It holds him tight and tighter till he cries, until the boy begins to beg for his release. But the tree only thickens around him in response, grows, feeding off him until his hair turns white and fine as orchid root, and bog moss fills the sockets of his cheeks. The man knows he cannot tell his son this story, yet he can't help but imagine it. A boy called by bark and leaf until the day a woodcutter comes into the forest to harvest it and saws and hacks at the rotten base, toppling it as all the oaks now in their neighborhood have toppled. Lost, the man tells his son, who finally asks, because the neighbors forgot to water them. Sheared off in a wall of root and mud that looms over them both, the great roots heaved up in a fist with the boy's knotted remnants inside, the man seeing this clearly, even as he tries not to see it, like a stone entwined in rope, or the head of an enemy raised after battle. Hmm. So with that, that poem, I, I really wanted to respond specifically to Ovid's um, story about the giants, and that's a war between the titans and the gods, and they basically take the earth and just sort of destroy it there, you know, in their attempts to take each other down. But I was thinking about, um, this is actually in a weird way a Facebook poem too, because there were uh, friends of mine in Seattle, there was a huge windstorm um, that just knocked all of these enormous old oaks and uh, pine trees just down. And people were taking pictures of themselves and their children in front of these roots. And I thought, you know, and, and it's sort of like, can you believe it? And I just thought, this is a terrible story. This is a terrible series of images to see, because what we're not, what we're looking at is not, wow, that was a big windstorm, but how many years of drought in Seattle um, would have allowed this to happen? You know, what you're really taking a picture of is not this moment, a snapshot of time. You're looking at a long series, many years of environmental devastation that was silent and was unseen until this one windstorm. And that, that sort of was, those two, two things came together and made me write that poem. And we'll have to uh, leave it there. We're out of time. We've been talking with uh, Paisley Rectal, University of Utah Professor of English, and Charles Waugh, Utah State University Associate Professor of English. They will be uh, panelists, uh, along with Jeffrey McCarthy from uh, University of Utah, um, on a Landriders panel, 7 p.m., Tomorrow evening, Salt Lake City Public Library, Main Library. Uh, by the way, you can uh, look at uh, many works of Paisley Rectal at her website, paisleyrectal.com. And uh, Charles Hua, his books include Family of Fallen Leaves, Stories of Agent Orange by Vietnamese Writers. Uh, thank you to you both. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community of everyday philanthropists raising the question and raising funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at www.utahwomensgivingcircle.com. Commentator Gina Wickwar. 
It's been a while since I've talked with you. We were away for nearly a month doing what a lot of people hope to do someday, floating up and down rivers in Europe from Budapest to Amsterdam. I'll regale you later with tidbits about ancient bridges, high-rising Danubes and Rhines, windmills at Kinderdijk, an organ recital in Melk, a Strauss and Mozart concert in Vienna, the poignancy felt in Nuremberg. But first, I want to take you back to late summer 1990 when my husband, his father Hardy, and I flew into Munich, rented a car, and drove to Czechoslovakia for Vin's scientific meeting in Prague. After two glorious weeks staying with the Czech family in that lovely old city, rejoicing in its new velvet revolution freedom, we set forth on another long road trip, one that would return us to Munich from where we'd fly home. We stuffed ourselves into our car, waved goodbye to the Rarovas, and slowly meandered our way south to Budapest, about 400 miles away. In mid-afternoon, we found ourselves on the riverfront in the downtown Pest portion of the city, the Buda part being across the beautiful Danube, the river that divides Hungary's capital. We parked illegally, and as Hardy and I waited, Vin walked around to various hotels looking for a place for the night. He'd come back periodically, frustrated that there appeared to be no rooms available. Finally, he got a tip there was a B&B outside the city and was given directions to it in mixed English and Hungarian. The language mix didn't have a happy ending. We couldn't locate said bed and breakfast. So back to the riverfront and another tip. A tad south of where we were parked was a Russian hotel that would certainly have room for us. We actually made it to the hotel after a few false twists and turns. And then we got out of the car and examined it. Not being an architect, I still would say it was paleo-Stalinesque in style, built in traditional unpainted Soviet cement. It was a rectangle seven stories tall and about as grim as a prison near Red Square. Oh, well, we said, tossing away our misgivings and entering its portals. We were assigned adjoining rooms on the sixth floor, from where we could see the city dump, I kid you not, and found our rooms relatively familiar in that they each had a bed, a window, and a bathroom. It is the latter that was most interesting. All three of us during our lives had lived abroad, sometimes in developing countries, which meant we were not ignorant of the varieties of indigenous restrooms found on this planet. The Budapestian cum Russian bathroom, however, took the cake. There came a gentle knock on our door, and peering in, Englishman, gentleman, hardy, expressed delicate curiosity as to how he would take advantage of his, um, er, W.C. Vin and I immediately checked out our own bathroom. Hardy's query was well-grounded. While there was a small porcelain toilet, fortunately not a hole in the floor, it stood in what was also the shower. In fact, the wash basin also stood in what was the shower. It meant that if one showered, the entire room was drenched. Tiled and with a large drain in the floor, the room was clearly built this way on purpose. Suffice it to say that a large number of towels were necessary, not just to dry off the showered person, but to wipe dry the remaining objects in the loo. Breakfast the next morning consisted of a glass of unrefrigerated orange juice, no tea or coffee for reasons we'd never know, and an untoasted, unbuttered piece of black bread. We never figured out whether this was because it was a traditional continental breakfast in a Russian hotel or whether the hoteliers just didn't like Americans. 
Ah, travel. More on Budapest to come, and this time our stay was at the Hilton. Not that a comparison would ever cross my mind. This is Gina Whitmore.